Welcome to A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library podcast, and it is brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, and joining me on the podcast today is Kelsey Ronan, who is uh, an author born and raised in Flint, based in Detroit now, has her debut novel coming out this month. In fact, it's probably out already by the time you're hearing this. It's called Chevy in the Hole, and it is really poignant love story between August and Monet. They are in Flint, and it is right on the cusp of the tragedy of the water crisis. This is a collection, really, of fictional vignettes as we really get to know August and Monet, but we also get to meet their family through the previous generations, going back to the civil rights era in the 60s, and then back to World War II, all from the perspective of Flint, as it was growing into this booming industry town, General Motors, and building tanks, and building cars, and building a theme park like Auto World, and just expanding, and building houses for workers to come in, and then everything, all these busy, busy factories, and then it all falls apart. Then we pick up with these veritable millennials who are now here after all of that degradation uh, amidst you know, cracked concrete and houses falling apart and just a city feeling like it is internally wounded. When we meet August, he has just overdosed at his day job and he was, you know, I guess technically almost dead for a second. He talks about seeing heaven. He comes back and he gives sobriety another go. He moves back in with his family back up in Flint. And that's where he meets Monet, who is currently trying to work on starting up an urban farm and just trying to bring some some kind of sense of a rebirth into her damaged town. They quickly start to fall in love, and it is a really sincere, heartwarming love story. Not without its ups and downs, not without its uh, occasional travails, but... Uh, You'll just have to read the book to find out more. We do start to go back through the generations and meet August's family and Monet's family, see how that they had actually, these ancestors intersected before. We get to see what Flint was like during World War II. We get to see Flint in the 60s. We get to hear about some legendary moments in Flint's history, including Keith Moon of The Who uh, crashing his car into the swimming pool of a Holiday Inn in 1967. And then we do also get to see and experience the water crisis through the eyes of this couple. But I don't want to give too much else away. I do want to get to our chat with Kelsey Ronan. As I said, she grew up in Flint and her works appeared in Literary Hub, Michigan Quarterly, Review, Kenyon Review, and many other places. And she is also a teacher for Inside Out Literary Arts. Chevy in the Hole is her first novel. We're excited to chat with her. How do you feel about that? Um, especially a novel that is, <laughs> right? Especially a novel that is so close to your heart, so close to your hometown. Uh, uh, epic in scale, but also digestibly 300 pages. Um, so just, first of all, uh, commending you on the whole on the whole feat. But uh, now that it's coming out, how do you feel? Well, thank you. You know, I feel both terrified and very grateful. <laughs> I'm really, really lucky that, you know, I have 
a, a great community, both in Flint and in Detroit, of like people who are going to be celebrating the book with me. I'm excited to yeah to go into the bookstores and do signings, and I'm going to have my launch night at Room Project, and going up to Flint later in the month for a big celebration. So it's a lot of butterflies, I guess. It's a lot of butterflies. How about we yeah. begin about the the evolution of the idea for this book it is in a way vignettes it is in a way mm-hmm. short stories it's it's interlinking the past of these of the two families of technically the two protagonists gus and monet but it's oh man it's a it's it's a tapestry kelsey but i guess <laughs> let me let me ask some like basic questions like at what point did you know it was going to center around a love story of sorts. Was that there from the beginning? I guess, what was there from the beginning? And what did it sure. end up looking like? Oh, the early like drafts of the book were, it was a short story collection first. It was a linked short story collection that was very chronological. It started with the sit-down strike, and there were two stories at the end that were from the perspectives of these urban farmers um, during the water crisis. <laughs> as my agent sent that short story collection around and it got rejected by it felt like every working person in manhattan (laughs) it was pretty grueling um par for the course i'm sure but um but i got a lot of rejections and so but a lot of like nice uh you know really gratifying words about the book and a lot of like thanks but no thanks so I got to a place with it where I was like, well, I keep sending this out or I pull back and like reconsider this project. So I took some time and decided to turn it into a novel. And it came from, you know, in like finishing those short stories, um, the, the two characters that really stuck with me were those farmers at the end. And I had in the, the interim where I was waiting to hear back from from every person in Manhattan with that no, I had been like turning them over in my mind and thinking about like, what would that look like? What would it look like to write a full like water crisis novel? So really when I, and most of those short stories ended up getting totally cut. But when I started drafting the novel, I just sort of flipped it and I started with those stories and followed it from there. And originally... When I was playing with it, it was from the perspective, it was a first person perspective from a child. Um, So like having the voice of someone who was the most vulnerable to the water crisis and and had the most at stake, so to speak. I think that idea of like, not just of survival, but of Flint being like a place of like joy and healing and pride for, for some people was really important to me. And so, you know, I was playing with it from her voice and, like, telling, like, this is my parents and then their parents and then their parents. But ultimately, I think I was, like, running into the, uh, like, narrative constraints of writing from a child's perspective. And pretty early on, I was like, no, I think this is a love story. I think this is from the perspective of Gus and Monet. And written beautifully, by the way, if not, if not you know, whilst just just describing stark imagery, um, abandoned houses, and just the everything that has been wrought upon 
Flint and we pick up kind of right before the water crisis actually happens and we get to feel the dread of the two main characters as the news reports start coming in and this has been a city that has let's let's talk about writing about Flint and uh, something that is resonant for any Gen Xer or millennial uh, is Michael Moore's Roger and Me comes up and I remember in the early 90s or whenever it was that was sort of as someone who lived at the along eight mile all my life that was sort of my first introduction to flint um was through totally. that story and that documentary is almost operatic in a way uh so i guess talk about that and how from really roger and me onward flint has always been seen as as a city that is always down and is continually kicked as it is down i mean i i love actually that you brought up roger and me before i had to right. um the characters watch it in the book so they do and it's you know i think like michael moore i, I don't know there was a, very much a time i where it felt like if anyone knew anyone who wasn't from like michigan if any if anyone knew about flint it was like through the lens of of roger and me now it feels like you know the water crisis is the first thing and that's been eclipsed mm-hmm. but yeah, that came out when I was really, really small. And so I didn't have any memory of it until I became a teenager. And somehow, probably through like the success of um, like Bowling for Columbine, I was like, what's this whole Roger and me thing? And why are people so touchy about it? There's a lot of very stark opposing opinions about Roger and me in Flint and how true it is. And, you know, what were the over the consequences of that movie coming out when it did. So I got like the VHS copy of it from the Flint Public Library when I was a teenager and still, and kind of got it, but kind of didn't. Um, and it's been a movie that I've, I've returned to a lot at different points in my life of trying to like, is now the time? Do I, do I understand the full Roger and me thing? But I think there's something really like foundational about about that for me is it's a movie that attempts to define Flint. And I think it was like successful at the time in, in defining Flint. And so though, like in some ways felt like a different world than, than what I knew, um, you know, I could see the pieces of the Flint that I did know, if that makes sense of like, I didn't, I didn't grow up, seeing like a lot of the big factories a lot of that had been demolished by the time my like little kid memory starts to kick in um yeah and and moving from like that coming out what was it like 89 ish mm-hmm. um and defining flint and then the flint that i knew was i mean sort of like like a punchline probably influenced by by Michael Moore. Um, and if, and if not that, if not that pitiable or in some way. Sure. And like, you know, like little digs about it on the Simpsons and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, like on those Forbes lists of, of the, the quote unquote worst cities, like Flint was always kind of down there in the, in the murk. Um, and I, and I grew up around that of like having this awareness of like, I have this place that I I know um, that's multifaceted and there's, you know, there's the history of my neighborhood, there's the history of my family, there's 
um, you know, just all, all these different communities that I see coming together versus this outside narrative that feels more stark and the water crisis felt like all of that on like suddenly a bigger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was living in St. Louis at the time of the water crisis when the news of it broke. And so for the first time I was experiencing the Flint narrative from, from hundreds of miles away, um, which was so disorienting in seeing um, national news presented the story. I remember once, um, pretty sure it was the New York Times. They were doing a piece where they were talking to different like business owners downtown. um, And there was a line in the story that was something like, the only people left in Flint are the people too poor to get out. And I don't want to dismiss that as a reality for, for people. Um, but at the same time, it's not the only reality. Like it was, it was disorienting to be told like there's a mass exodus. Everyone with the means is leaving Flint. But at the same time, like, I knew, like, I don't know, my mom was still in Flint driving a school bus and taking her library books back and feeding her cats. You know, there was still um, so much normalcy that I was witnessing from afar at the same time that the the story was that, you know, the, the sky was falling down. Mm-hmm. And I think that question of how those two things can be true at the same time, and there's always with Flint, I think that, like, yes but or the yes and um in some ways became like what i was writing into i was really interested in that um kind of duality of the people who who make a home in flint and the people who leave which is captured poignantly in this book when we meet the full cast through generations and we really touch into uh mostly three key moments it's close to the present day water crisis it's civil rights era and it's world war ii so you know and thinking about flint and again from my you know my my viewpoint of just watching my own vhs in the 90s of roger me (laughs) it seemed like it seemed like the city itself had become so much about the industry and so much about GM that the city itself was almost um, an afterthought or the actual citizens of it because it was such an industry town. And then, you know, you watch the documentary and then there's this sense of, there's a combination of um, uh, hubris and then treachery and then this innocence. There's like the hubris of going, going too big. There's the treachery that, or the sense that, um, GM betrayed the city in some way. And then there's that innocence of the people who just were living there and got, you know, hit by the economic tidal wave. And then, you know, not exactly another water metaphor, but poisoned water. So sure. I think that, I think that what you're, and what I wanted you to talk about is the, that delicacy of writing and it is fiction, but to another degree, there's also like a sense of journalism going on with what you're doing which is why i really loved but um talk about how this 
book is centered around a city that seems so booming at first. Uh, and yet for the people living there, there's this sense of inertia and then this, I guess, undue punishment that comes. Um, you, but you write so beautifully about these two families. I wanted if you could talk about, um, obviously a lot of research had to go into that too. So just tell me how you approached that aspect. Not so much the love story, which is what we started with, but getting into the past and uh, really looking at the people on the ground. Sure. Uh, well, thank you for your kind words. Um, the early drafts of the book, the, it was a much more kind of like close parallel. August family in many ways paralleled my own. Um, my great grandparents on one side came up from Tennessee and on the other side um, came up to Detroit. Um, from Detroit to sell pots and pans door to door as like Flint was, um, you know, becoming more populated and becoming more moneyed. Mm -hmm. So it really started with those family stories, both what I knew and what I wish I knew that I imagined. So my grandfather was a huge part of my upbringing. He retired from I mean, like a lot of plant guys of his generation, he moved from plant to plant and ultimately ended up, you know, driving from Flint to Flat Rock to work at Mazda. Um, and that's where he retired. But his, one of his like retirement joys, which is also a great joy for me, was just like driving me around Flint and showing me where things used to be, like the neighborhood that they, you know, very poor, again, like, that his father was a, a salesman. Um, the neighborhood where they were renting apartments through his childhood, you know, totally knocked out by the expressway. Um, all the, you know, these like very rosy, <laughs> um, you know, 1950s stories mm -hmm. of um, being a young man in the thriving city. Um, and falling in love with my grandmother, like jobs he had, um, the paper route he did on his bicycle, all the places downtown where, you know, like the lines on Friday night for the movies would wrap around the block or different stores, different restaurants, all these um, things that there was just not, not a trace of um, by the time, you know, he was showing them to me. So that... That was, I don't know that that counts as research, but that collection, um, that deep listening that I was really um, privileged to receive from someone who was a very good storyteller and loved to tell stories, um, that was all buried in there. Um, and then as, you know, he died when I was in my early 20s, 21, um, and so, you know, like coming into adulthood and as my understanding of the world, as my understanding of Flint became deeper, you know, the questions I had about like, well, did anyone in the, like, he became an auto worker, but like, was there anyone else in the extended family that was working on the line? Like, what was the experience of being in Flint during World War II, like, what about, you know, that the summer of 67 with the, um, with the uprising and how that reverberated into Flint, like all these, these memories um, that I no longer had access to, and that became 
the places where I was really diving in and doing research. I feel like I've already said this one public library like several times, but honestly, they're mentioned several times in the book and I, and I love them very deeply and um, spent a lot of time there as a kid. But they uh, were a great assistance to me in in writing the book. Like uh, there was a lot that was pulled together from oral archives about the, the Beecher tornado in the 50s, about the sit-down strike and the women's auxiliary. Um, and then there was quite a bit of newspaper research. Flint, as you've already um, pointed out, as a, as a factory town, as a one industry town where GM had so much control, like as GM, um, when the factories took off, you know, people were like coming up from the Great Migration, um, families like mine that were coming up um, from the South as well. You know, like people were arriving in Flint were there were no house like GM was building houses to like put its put its workers up. Um, and the city's politics, the city's newspaper had GM's control was so um, you know, kind of firm in in all of those parts of the city. So I did a lot of newspaper.com research, but it was mostly like the Detroit papers I had to go to um, to get, you know, any telling of that story that felt trustworthy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we should say Chevy in the Hole is kind of a nickname of sorts for, for Flint manufacturing, the former site of the former site of the sit-down strike. And yeah, I guess the that really resonates with me, especially capturing um, oral histories or just histories of our families. Um, could you, as, as you'd mentioned, trying to get this book published, which again, you know, congrats that, that it's coming out. Um, if you were boiling this down, and I never asked this question, but I don't know why, but if you were boiling this down to its essence or some kind of elevator pitch, what was really, or what really kept driving you? Were you looking for that, that meditation on how this feels like some kind of a haunted town? Uh, we have these present day two people trying to fall in love, but we're also ruminating on their past. And it's like, what was once here and their roots and the city's roots. And uh, it's just, Tell me about what was really in your heart when you were, when you got to this book. You know, I think it was two things. So to perhaps divulge too much about me personally, I I moved out of Flint in 2011. Um, I was widowed. It was very overwhelming to kind of deal with that kind of grief at 24. When the water crisis happened, um, my mom got sick. And so I was driving back from St. Louis more and more and decided to to move back to Michigan, move to Detroit. And so there was a lot that I had tried to keep very compartmentalized and like pushed away. Like um, Flint's a really difficult place to what you, um, I mean, I think every Flint person knows Flint's very particular in its way, but especially in moving around the country and being like, oh, like kind of, having a new perspective on where I was from and then coming back in the water crisis, it was a lot of reckoning. It was a lot of reckoning with 
the city and the complications of the stories that I had, the stories in my family. And I'm from a blue collar family, but again, like my grandfather's stories about the city, you know, were very like, there was a lot going on and here were all the like, the great places you could take your girl on a Friday night. Prosperity. Um, <laughs> having that, you know, complicated by like learning about environmental racism, learning about, um, sure, my family had come up poor from the South, but they hadn't been made to, you know, live basically beneath the Buick foundry and, and inhale um, that air for generations. So it was both reckoning with with Flint and what I was learning and the outside perceptions that were coming in from the national attention the story was getting and also with reckoning with my own grief um, being back home and um, Brian my partner really having to deal with that in a way that I hadn't yeah and his that very much ended up informing um, the the character Gus. There's a lot of him in there. It was nice um, and, you know, strangely cathartic and healing to be able to, like, process those memories and to funnel them into to a character and um, just kind of live with them. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing, and I am so, so sorry to hear all that. I think that what you did achieve and what I could share, having read the book, is that even though they they do go through their own ups and downs, I I really felt a real warmth as Monet and Gus's relationship develops, and I think that you wrote them both quite beautifully. Thank you. And but I think that there is something to be said about the resilience that I see. They're trying their best, and yes, maybe they're not perfect, but they are both Gus and Monet d- displaying a real sense of resiliency and i don't know i feel their strength i really feel their strength in this book and certainly don't want to spoil they certainly some things happen to them but um it's uh it's beautifully written and i think resiliency and strength is really what what resonated from from what i took away and it is so good to get to meet their uh, i guess their ancestors as we go along but i think that this thank you yeah i it's like (laughs) it's it's really as i can't even imagine uh as i'm sure you can express threading that needle of writing this compelling, you know, fictional narrative, but also adorning it with a a bit of actual substantive, provocative social commentary. Um, That is not an easy balancing act, but you did it, did it perfectly. Um, I wish I had a more profound question to go into, but I guess maybe it is better to go into a lighter question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm still just like glowing from that review you just gave me. I'll take it. Uh, and I and I don't have a structured question here, but I just wanted to say an observation, and maybe you could tell me, and maybe there isn't anything interesting, maybe there is. But uh, we've been talking about the auto industry, we've been talking about Flint, we've been talking about the water situation. I feel like music is played in every single chapter. Music is referred to, we know what's listening. I feel like if this was a movie, it would be a great soundtrack. Uh, I just, it started to... <laughs> become very noticeable that music became a very big part of this book or it's always in the background um and i don't know if that's like a level of it's uh it's a universal source of comfort um or if you really just wanted us to know what they're listening to but it uh it's there kelsey (laughs) it is i mean i 
I don't know that I have anything more like more profound to say about oh. it than like I am a I am a big music nerd. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say a snob. <laughs> I think in many ways I have very lowbrow taste, but I have very wide ranging taste, and I love I love the history of popular music. Um, and you know, one thing that fascinates me about Flint and is very much tied to its story of, um, you know, population loss um, is for a long time, like, you know, Flint was a city of nearly a quarter of a million people. It's only an hour from Detroit. So it was a, it was a stop again, like in the stories that were just stories by the time time I, um, by the time I came of age, but um, it was, it was stop on tours, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So the book is, you know, like at the centerpiece, I guess, of the book is this, this much repeated with, with many variations. um, The story of how Keith Moon in the summer of 67 drove a Cadillac into Flint's holiday and swimming pool. And just, I feel like Flint has so many little kind of footnotes in in pop music. <laughs> like Johnny Cash played his last full show there. It's where he announced, he, he fell on stage and announced he was, you know, entering a new a new phase in his health. Grand Funk Railroad, of course, Grand there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the Dayton family. Everybody loved Flint Town when I was in high school. But and yeah, there's just little stuff like, oh, I can't remember the author. Where did our love go? It's beautiful uh, history of Motown. But it, early on, there's this anecdote that like Smokey Robinson and Barry Gordy would drive up from Detroit to Flint to a record pressing plant to pick up, you know, these records. And it was on that drive to Flint that I think it was Smokey Robinson that was like, what if we just started our own label and quit doing this? (laughs) So, um, yeah, just having that, I guess, positionality as a city that used to be a stop on the route for major musicians, has this closeness to Detroit, has these really interesting artists that have parts of their story or their roots there. Um, I can just get lost in that stuff forever. Just for peace of mind, Nelson George was the author of that book. Nelson George, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think that this book again is really, really resonant. I there was a, I think it really does a good job of talking about everyday people in their houses, if they're driving a school bus, if they're going to the library, and all of this booming activity sort of happening around them. And uh, I guess just what happens what happens to them that sense of the inertia you you have this great line in there um when we go back to world war ii about tanks rolling off the assembly line into a huge vat of money and we really forget about the actual human hands who touched the tank and made the tank and then it just goes off and then there's industry and money and politics and all of that and then what gets left behind and then what happens to all the people and good god hopefully love can bloom out of all of this and that's the book that's you know um (laughs) And not to mention just the, you know, the surrealism. I, I really found it, like, it hit me hard when these two main characters, it just takes you back in time five years ago, seven years ago, or whatever. When those first news reports start coming in, it's just so surreal. Like, really? After everything else, this could happen to Flint. So to experience it through such well-defined characters, 
um, was just really, really profound. So I'm rambling at you right now, Kelsey. I got uh, I got nothing else. <laughs> I mean, thank you for all of it. But also, I think, good God, hopefully love can bloom in all of this. It <laughs> should yes. be like, yes, there should be posters around. Amidst, that yes, amidst all this, against all odds. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, from everything I've said, right? Of, yeah having all the all the things that flint has thrown at it and all i mean detroit is very much the same it's probably very true right most rust belt cities of like having this sort of always being the punchline always being someone else's like oh that poor place or oh i'd never go there oh blah 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 having a little reclamation at the end of that you know like having some like yes there's a lot of like pain and (laughs) <laughs> well, a lot of pain, well, a lot of injustice here, but there's also like, there's also so much else. There's also so much people find enriching yeah. and fulfilling in their lives. Yeah. I have a, a friend who likes to say that dandelions are flowers too. Uh, and I just wanted to draw attention to the book cover where it is this cracked concrete and just an eyesore of moss is growing up, but also this bright little micro sunshine of dandelions and if when you turn the book on its side or at least my paperback copy there's just dandelions galore and it feels like i don't know if i'm reading too deeply into that but there's some brightness coming up there and there's i i don't think dandelions have ever really looked as beautiful to me as they do on this book so i don't know what that symbolism is but yeah, I mean, the first, I, I can, of course, take no credit for any of, of the beautiful <laughs> art. I can't, I have no, um, can't take any claim on the cover, except for when I got the first draft of the cover, it had, like, a little white flower, like a little like a little daisy or something, and I was like, you know, this is very cool, but there's no tiny white flowers growing up out of the sidewalk in Flint, like, change this, and so the dandelion, um, yeah, the dandelion, I, I agree with that. They're yeah. flowers too. And I like the, I don't know, dandelions have their, their different life cycles, right? Their bright sunniness and their poofy spores blow them away, <laughs> period too. And you know what? They are resilient. So. And that was my chat with Kelsey Ronan, the author of Chevy in the Hole, her debut novel, which is out now. Thank you, Kelsey, for joining us. And thank you for listening to another episode of A Little Too Quiet. It's the Ferndale Library Podcast. It's brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each episode is by a local musician, John Duffy. If you want to support this podcast, you could go to ferndalefriends.org. Remember, please, to rate, review, and hopefully subscribe as well, or just tell a friend about it. If you enjoyed this chat about Chevy in the Hole and Flint history, share it to social media. We'll be back next week with more. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.